really is Oxy Cotton University. I mean, I, I, I think it's, mm-hmm. it's a horrible embarrassment for the school that they have, you know, they continue to, uh, you know, kind of carry water for the Sacklers. And I don't really see how Anthony Monaco can, can stay in the president's role, considering how complicit he's been in all of this. Welcome to A Blight on the Hill. I'm Liam Knox. I'm Maddie Reed. And I'm Sana Ludke. A Blight on the Hill takes a look at the structural problems at Tufts that are caused by its two primary motivators as an institution, profit and growth. We're a project of the Tufts Daily, Tufts University's independent student newspaper since 1980. Thanks for joining us. This episode will focus on a topic that has received a lot of attention in the past year, and at the same time, not nearly enough. Tufts University's relationship with the infamous Sackler family, the owners of Purdue Pharmaceuticals, and one of the main parties responsible for the American opioid crisis. We'll go over the history of the Sackler's influential marketing techniques, and then go on to the relationship with the university, epitomized by the very name of one of Tufts' most profitable and prestigious graduate schools, the Sackler School of Biomedical Sciences. You'll also hear from a few experts. Christopher Glazek, whose voice you heard at the beginning of this episode, is a writer and reporter whose work has appeared in The New Yorker and The New York Times, among other outlets. His 2017 expose of the Sacklers in Esquire magazine helped shed a light on the family's personal responsibility for the opioid crisis. Andrew Kolodny is the director of the Opioid Policy Research Collaborative at Brandeis University and has spoken out against Purdue Pharma and the greed of the opioid industry for decades. There are many materials that were produced by Purdue Pharma with clear, deceptive, or or I should say um, unclear information Mm -hmm. or intentionally deceptive information about opioids intended to convince doctors to prescribe more aggressively. And David Davila is a first-year student at Tufts Medical School. He is a part of a group of medical students demanding more donor transparency from the institution, as well as action to remove the Sackler name from the med school building. We have a lot of students here who are focused on addiction medicine, and that's a lot of cognitive dissonance. You would never dream of naming naming a medical school after the family that invented cigarettes, and it's unacceptable to have our building named after a family that had a direct hand in creating the opioid epidemic. In 2013, Tufts President Anthony Monaco awarded Raymond R. Sackler an honorary degree from the university. Honorary degrees are almost always awarded at commencement, but for the first time in Tufts history, the president traveled to Purdue Pharma's headquarters in Stamford, Connecticut, to present the aging pharmaceutical tycoon with one of the highest honors Tufts can give. At the ceremony, Monaco said of Sackler, It would be impossible to calculate how many lives you have saved how many scientific fields you have redefined, and how many new physicians, scientists, mathematicians, and engineers are doing important work as a result of your entrepreneurial spirit. At institutions where you have made your imprint, in the United States, in England, Israel, France, and the Netherlands, new ideas about how we treat disease or understand our universe and ourselves are born every day. You are a world changer. 
Arguably, the Sackler's impact is calculable. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, an average of 130 Americans die every day from an opioid overdose. And earlier this year, Massachusetts Attorney General Mara Healey brought charges against not only the Sacklers, but a number of medical institutions that have accepted money from them, including Tufts, Massachusetts General Hospital, and Boston University. These charges allege that Tufts and other institutions helped enable the opioid crisis that brought Purdue so much profit. Tufts participated by enhancing the Sackler family's reputation as benevolent philanthropists, as well as through specific medical programs and research initiatives that have helped the Sacklers convince doctors and patients that opioids like Oxycontin are less dangerous or addictive than they really are. In light of the devastation of the opioid crisis and what we know about Purdue Pharma's exploitative role in the death and suffering it has caused, we are prompted to ask, how has Tufts helped the Sacklers redefine these scientific fields? How has Raymond Sackler's entrepreneurial spirit shaped the work of doctors, pain researchers, biomedical engineers, including those who have gone through the programs funded by the family, like those at Tufts Medical and Sackler Schools? And what impact has this had on pain research and opioid prescription? Our investigation will dive into all of these questions. But first, a little history. In 1952, the brothers Raymond and Mortimer Sackler purchased Purdue Pharmaceuticals. At the time, Purdue was a small drug company based out of Manhattan that specialized in products like laxatives and earwax remover. But the Sacklers weren't too interested in maintaining the company as it was. In 1972, Purdue developed Contin, an oxycodone-based painkiller and the initial predecessor to Oxycontin. They would later develop MS Contin, an extended-release morphine pill in 1984, and of course, Oxycontin, which was released in 1996. But Purdue Pharma was unremarkable until the Sacklers, with the help of their third brother, Arthur, who ran an advertising agency, introduced marketing techniques that revolutionized the prescription drug business. Their advertisements targeted not the consumers of the drugs, but the people with the power to prescribe them, doctors. Arthur's first success with this kind of advertising wasn't for Purdue, though. It was for Valium, a drug which would plague Americans with addiction and suffering in much the same way OxyContin does today. In 1997, Arthur was posthumously inducted into the Medical Advertising Hall of Fame. In his induction, he was praised for bringing the full power of advertising and promotion to pharmaceutical marketing. Glazek agrees that his contributions to the field are immeasurable, but has a less positive take on their impact. Uh, the, the family made its first kind of giant pile of cash um, with um, Valium in the 60s. And Arthur actually devised a marketing strategy for Valium. And uh, he, he, he was on a special contract with a pharmaceutical company that actually entitled him to a share of the profits. And he turned Valium into the biggest drug in the world, the first drug in history to gross more than $100 million. And his strategy with Valium was uh, pretty simple, actually. Uh, Valium, uh, the chemical, had already been on the market uh, under a different name called Librium. And it was uh, used for narrow purposes to treat you know, what was then called um, anxiety, uh, but, which, which at the time had a kind of more special definition. Arthur's idea was, why don't we take this relatively specialized drug, but market it for all kinds of patients for all kinds of purposes? And so he kind of invented this concept he called psychic tension. And he said, you know, this, this drug, Valium, could help relieve psychic tension uh, that you know, maybe manifested itself in, in sleeping problems or digestive problems or sexual health problems. 
basically, you know, for Valium for any purpose. And kind of this image of these, you know, housewives from, from the 60s and 70s kind of filled up on Valium, um, and, and that, that, that's a measure of the success of, of Arthur's marketing campaign. So he, he took this kind of highly specialized drug, initially targeted to, to a small group of patients, and kind of blew up its, uh, its potential uses and marketed to all kinds of patients. The Senate held hearings on these techniques in 1973, at which former Massachusetts Senator Ted Kennedy said they caused a, quote, nightmare of dependence and addiction. Nonetheless, the Sacklers carried over these techniques to advertise Purdue Pharma's own drugs, which became popular and profitable in the 1980s. Here's Glazek with a breakdown of that timeline. Arthur died in, in the late 1980s. Okay. His younger brother, who so kind of worshipped and looked up to him, you could say kind of adapted Arthur's marketing technique for Oxycontin, which is a drug that they developed, which you know, followed a very similar kind of trajectory to Valium. Uh, the, the, the pharmaceutical company that the three brothers owned called Purdue Pharma had this drug in the 80s that was a you know, pr- pr- pretty big hit called MS-Contin, which is kind of Oxycontin's uncle. What, what, what the Sappers had the idea, though, as their first drug, MS-Contin, was, was going off of patents, they were like, okay, this is our only hit drug. What are we going to do to kind of keep the money flowing? And they said, okay, well, why don't we kind of dust off this old chemical from the early 20th century called oxycodone, which, uh, you know, really is the same as heroin or morphine or, you know, all, all these opioids are essentially indistinguishable. Mm. Oxycodone was an old drug, but it didn't have the same kind of brand aura that morphine did. Morphine sounded like you were dying. And morphine was a drug that only specialist doctors were really comfortable prescribing. You were going to get a family practitioner prescribing someone morphine for, for kind of an ordinary ailment. Um, but oxycodone didn't have that same association because oxycodone was used in these much weaker drugs, kind of like, like, like Percocet, um, you know, you know, which people would use kind of for broken bones or right. kind of aches and pains because it's just kind of short, short acting, very commonly prescribed, you know, and, and, and abused sometimes, but, but relatively weak sure. drug. Yeah. So they said, okay, well, why don't we make a time-release oxycodone pill that's you know, kind of similar to our time-release morphine pill, but instead of targeting this at cancer patients, why don't we target this at everybody? Um, and it's so kind of like how Valium had, had functioned in the 60s, that you could take Oxycontin for any kind of pain, for menstrual pain, for dental pain, you know, for, for uh, um, you know, sores, uh, back pain. Um, and what they did is they, is they targeted this drug at kind of unsophisticated doctors, so kind of general practitioners, particularly in, in, in rural areas, also nurse practitioners, also physician assistants. Um, so kind of moving out of their, their, their specialist market that they had kind of dominated in the 1980s, mm-hmm. they wanted to make Oxycontin this much, much bigger drug. And, and, and this is where the, the billions really, started, this is when the billions really started flowing in. The federal government has expressed grave concerns about Purdue's manipulative marketing techniques many times over the years. More contemporary examples include a 2001 House subcommittee hearing on Oxycontin abuse, a 2002 Senate hearing titled Oxycontin, Balancing Risks and Benefits, a 2016 hearing on America's heroin and opioid abuse epidemic, and of course, the famous 2007 federal lawsuit filed by the U.S. government against Purdue. According to the New York Times, the criminal and civil charges were related to the drug's misbranding from late 1995 to mid-2001, during which time Oxycontin brought in $2.8 billion in revenue for Purdue Pharma. 
Purdue agreed to pay over $600 million in fines as part of the 2007 settlement, one of the largest fees ever levied against a pharmaceutical company. Top executives Michael Friedman, Howard Udell, and Paul Goldenheim paid a collective $34.5 million. But the Sacklers themselves were noticeably absent from any record of this financial reckoning for the crimes of Purdue. When the company did get into hot water in 2007, uh, you know, because the opioid epidemic kind of, you know, the first wave of the prescription drug epidemic really heated up in like 2001, you know, late 90s, early 2000s. When the company got into hot water and actually had to plead guilty to criminal charges from the federal government, which is really unusual for, for a pharmaceutical company to plead guilty to criminal charges. And they had to offer up three of their top executives to also plead guilty to criminal charges for, right. for misleading the public about, and, and doctors about the addictiveness of Oxycontin. They were essentially able to get the federal government to scrub the family name from the plea agreement. And it's really fascinating because you, you look at it and you said, you know, there's this like agreed statement of facts where the company, like, we admit we're doing this, we admit doing that, we admit that executives of the company lied, we admit that it, or, or directed others to lie. Um, but you don't see the Sackler name anywhere in the agreed statement of facts. But what you do see is the Sackler name all over this accompanying document, which was not circulated to the press. But there's this other document, uh, which is a non-prosecution agreement. And the non-prosecution agreement listed like over 200 entities related to the Sacklers, um, including all their various nonprofits and charities, and such like Sackler Foundation, the Sackler Center, that, you know, it, it, it basically the government agreeing that we're not going to go after any of these entities because, you know, the settlement is the settlement, and, you know, the company admitted they were they did wrong, and now, now justice huh. has been served, basically. That's what makes this new round of public outrage and legal action different from the many that have come before. Attorney General Healy's report names the Sacklers specifically in its charges, finally bringing their family name, for so long kept separate from their business and tied only to their philanthropic efforts, into the piercing spotlight of public scrutiny. According to a March 4th article in Bloomberg, over 36 states have filed lawsuits against Purdue Pharma or the Sacklers. Earlier this year, New York filed a lawsuit charging the Sacklers with systemic fraud. Over 1,500 U.S. cities and counties are suing as well. Not every state names the Sacklers as defendants, but a few have, like Rhode Island, Utah, and Massachusetts. As to be expected, the Sacklers are pushing back. According to a New York Times article published in March, a Sackler family spokesman called the allegations, quote, a misguided attempt to place blame where it does not belong for a complex public health crisis. But Glazek says that the blame for this public health crisis is being placed exactly where it belongs, at the feet of the family that started it all. We have an opioid crisis in the U.S., but we also have an accountability crisis. Yeah. And you know, we, we tend to think of these, these kind of public health crises as the product of huge, impersonal, kind of tectonic forces like slow-moving trends that are complex and hard to understand. And, you know, often that's true. But to a remarkable degree, the prescription drug epidemic in the United States is the product of actions taken by individuals and, above all, actions taken by a single family. And, and right. that's a somewhat unusual circumstance. But the Sacklers in Purdue will, will come back and say, hey, you know, we're not the only ones who made opioids. All these big pharmaceutical companies got involved in the game. That's very misleading, though. Uh, you know, the Sacklers built this market. They, they really right. did. You know, they, they really changed the course of human history. It's not clear that there would be a prescription drug epidemic in the way that it is unfolded if, if it hadn't been for Purdue. Um, you know, you know and, and what, one of the important 
uh, reasons for that is you, Purdue is a one-trick pony. It only sells Oxycontin. And, uh, you know, when, 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 when you're, I mean, it does have a couple other drugs, but, but they, they're totally marginal in their, their profit contribution. When, when you only have one drug you're selling, and when you're a, a company that is 100% owned by a single family, you know, versus, you know, you know Johnson & Johnson or, or Pfizer or, you know, these, these big giants which have corporate boards and public shareholders and have to kind of be accountable to, you know, all these public forces, when you're a closely held private company that one family owns, it gives you great latitude of movement to uh, take risks. Right. And what Purdue did with Oxycontin was extremely risky, you know, and, and risky to the extent that, you know, that they broke the law and they ended up having to pay, you know, a, a $600 million fine, which was at the time, you know, one of the largest fines ever paid by a pharmaceutical company. But they pushed the envelope to the max in terms of lying to doctors, paying doctors off, you know, that they would kind of like start these things they call speakers bureaus, they have they invite doctors to give talks at dinners and they give them $500 or $1,000. Um, it, it, was, it was really just a bribe to, to, to prescribe higher quantities of Oxycontin. Right. And, it, you know, these were things that, that you know, the staffers didn't invent these particular techniques of, like, you know, flying a group of doctors to, you know, Pebble Beach for, to, to, you know, for, for a kind of fake conference. But, uh, but, they, but they pursued it much more aggressively. And in particular, pharmaceutical companies ha- had never employed those kind of tactics to market a controlled substance. You know, Oxycontin was a Schedule two narcotic. Right. So, it, you know, it's a little bit different than if you're just promoting, like, an antidepressant or something like that. Um, so the staff just kind of had the chutzpah to, uh, to, to, to kind of use the full arsenal of pharmaceutical company inducements in order to promote this kind of, uh, you know, this, this kind of risky drug. And I think it's really worth asking whether the big boys, like, you know, Pfizer or Merck, would they really have gotten into this game if the staffers hadn't already paved the way and built the market? Because they, they, you know, it's much riskier for them. They have this giant portfolio of drugs. Yeah. You know, they have public shareholders. I, you know, I don't think it's at all obvious that they would have that this market would, would have inevitably been built anyway if, if Sacklers hadn't, uh, you know, paved the way. While the Sacklers may have engineered the crisis, they've been vigilant in their efforts to keep their personal responsibility for Purdue's actions deep in the background. But at the same time. They've courted global recognition in other ways. The Sacklers are one of the largest and most important philanthropic families in the world, from elite artistic institutions like the Met and the Guggenheim to elite academic institutions like Yale and Harvard. The Sacklers have embedded their family name into the halls of the world's most prestigious centers of learning and culture. They even have an asteroid named after them in honor of their donations toward research in astrophysics and astronomy. The Sacklers are among the very most important philanthropists in the world. Um, I mean, if you, you add up all, all, all the money over the years, I and mean, it's really you know, reaching probably into, into hundreds, hundreds of millions, um, their, their style of philanthropy is rather different than that of someone like Bill Gates or uh, Andrew Carnegie. If you think about what Bill Gates did, he basically gave all of his money to his own institution, this kind of giant institution called the Gates Foundation, right. which is really focused on global poverty, uh, infectious diseases and sub-Saharan Africa, um, kind of you know, ministering to global masses. I think I say in my piece, um, you know, a- Andrew Carnegie founded like a thousand libraries in small towns all across the country. Yeah, um, they created new things. What the Sacklers have done is very different. They have affiliated themselves with the most famous, most elite, best endowed institutions in the country. Mm-hmm. 
So they, really what they've done is they've, kind of, they've affiliated themselves with blue-chip brands. The Take, The Louvre, Harvard, Yale, Tufts, Columbia, mm -hmm. NYU. You know, it, it, it's like wherever there is excellence, wherever yeah. there is prestige, the Sacklers will be there, and there often will be a room named after them or a school named after them or a wing named after them. Um, they've kind of braided the family name through the most elite, most prestigious institutions in, in, in the world, mostly in the United States and in the UK. So, why do their best to hide the Sackler name from its association with Purdue Pharma, but amplify it so widely through donations and grants? Kolodny says this could be seen as a kind of defensive mechanism against the social ramifications of their business. No, I, I think to some extent what we see with the philanthropy from the Sackler family is an effort at reputation laundering. Yeah. And I don't believe that academic institutions or museums should be in the business of reputation laundering, helping uh, individuals who have earned really blood money uh, um, wash their reputation or improve their social standing. Even if Tufts had been completely uninvolved in efforts to promote aggressive prescribing, and unfortunately I believe Tufts has played a role in both encouraging aggressive prescribing and in trying to block efforts to promote more cautious prescribing, and I believe there was an influence from the Sackler family on actions taken by, by Tufts. Um, I think that um, even if Tufts had been totally out of the, had been completely silent on the topic of opioid, prescribing, simply taking this money, putting the Sackler name on, on buildings or on programs um, is, I think, inappropriate. I don't believe you can really separate uh, this philanthropy uh, or the money from the way in which it was earned. And in the same way, I don't think that Tufts would have taken money from Pablo Escobar or some uh, the head of an illicit drug cartel. Mm -hmm. I think they should think about Sackler money the same way. It, it, it's blood money. But as Dr. Kolodny noted, Tufts, unlike most of the institutions that have benefited from the Sackler's philanthropy, isn't just accepting the Sackler's money to build a new library or a laboratory. The funding is often specifically for research and educational programs related to pain medication, Purdue's pharmaceutical wheelhouse. So the, the connections to Purdue are basically, uh, Purdue had convinced Tufts to like use this textbook that Purdue had essentially written that basically said that like opioids weren't that harmful. Um, there's also there's a particular pain researcher at Tufts who had, you know, I think he wrote something um, criticizing the uh, CDC, which basically in, in 2015, you know, questioned whether long-acting opioids actually are useful at uh, preventing chronic pain because huh. you know they, they, they increase your pain threshold so much. The idea is like you know, there's never actually been like good research suggesting that they work past the period of time, you know, six weeks or something. Um, so there, there, there's a guy at Tufts who wrote something critical of that uh, decision of the CDC, but never disclosed that um, his professorship actually, you know, either a grant he received or maybe actually even he had an endowed share yeah. that was uh, partially funded by the Sacklers. But then, anyway, and then a Purdue employee had been then hired by Tufts as, a, as an adjunct professor. So there's, just been, there's been various connections over the years. But what's unusual about it, again, is that this is a case where Sackler money, and, and maybe some money actually from Purdue, 
um, is being used to fund pain research, so something directly related to the actual business. And then the Tufts has produced research uh, a couple of different times that has um, basically downplayed the risks of, of, of opioids. So let's do some digging and take stock of what we mean when we call Tufts OxyContin University, the title of this episode. The Sacklers solidified their relationship with Tufts in 1980, when they endowed the creation of the Sackler School of Biomedical Sciences. As concerning as it is to have a biomedical sciences school funded almost entirely by a pharmaceutical dynasty responsible for an addiction epidemic, things got really concerning in 1999. This was the year that the Sacklers funded the creation of a new master's program at the medical school, a master's in pain research, education, and policy, otherwise known as MS Prep. The man who started it is the same pain researcher that Glazek referred to earlier. You know, the one who wrote that paper lambasting the CDC for advising doctors to exercise caution when prescribing opioids. His name is Dr. Daniel Carr, and he is still the program's director today. Carr has written and spoken countless times about the miraculous benefits of painkillers and the dangers of, quote, opiophobia. In 2001, he co-wrote an article in the Journal of Pain and Palliative Care Pharmacotherapy in which he expressed his fear that, quote, concerns about the risks of addiction and fears about possible abuse have had the most detrimental effect, and this has led in some cases to widespread suffering of patients. And his 2007 response piece to the CDC's recommendation to prescribers to be more cautious with opioids is equally fiery in its defense of opioids and its dismissal of their dangers. In the piece, he calls government regulations restrictive and argues, without any evidence, that patients' pain is going undertreated because, quote, too many patients and physicians harbor unrealistic anxieties about precipitating adverse side effects of opioids. This, what he called a, quote, Failure to alleviate pain was, in his view, negligent, a breach of human rights, and professional misconduct. Carr, as a reminder, still directs MS Prep here, and is a professor of public health and community medicine at Tufts Medical School. In 2012, Carr taught a course offered to doctors and other medical practitioners looking for continued education called Caring for Outliers in a Mean-Minded World. It was a crash course in what the Sacklers would call pain management, and explored how access to certain kinds of pain medication could, or should, be expanded to a greater pool of patients who might benefit from them. The course, and Carr's paycheck for teaching it, was funded partly by, you guessed it, Purdue Pharma. But as troubling as all of that is, the issue goes beyond Carr. The MS Prep program has been using materials created with Purdue money and influenced by Purdue officials to train doctors, scientists, researchers, and even policymakers on pain management and treatment. For Kolodny, this is where Tufts' role in the opioid crisis can be seen most clearly. Uh, these are materials that minimize the risks of a very dangerous drug, very addictive drug, and exaggerate it, the benefits and and encourage inappropriate use. And that's why we have an epidemic of opioid addiction. The reason we're in the midst of this crisis is because doctors have been prescribing too aggressively. So these materials um, that are promoted, not just to students, but to practicing physicians and nurse practitioners and physician's assistants can lead to 
harm. Uh, these are, in many cases, clinicians who are caring for patients, and if they're being given information that they're, they might think is credible, um, but that has a significant bias in it, um, that information could then harm their patients. Even though Purdue claims to have stopped funding the program in 2008, Davila said that his concerns about the MS prep program are just as serious as his concerns about the Sackler School, maybe even more so. Well, one of the biggest donations that Tufts has received from the Sackler family was back in 1980 when they established the Sackler School of Graduate, Graduate Biomedical Sciences, um, which was, used to be housed here in this building, in the Sackler Building at 145 Harrison Avenue. And the other program closely associated with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharmaceuticals is the Masters in Sciences of Pain Research, Education, and Policy, we call it the MS Prep Program, um, uh, which was also created from money that was donated from the Sackler family. And the really concerning part about this second one, the Masters Program in Pain Research, is that not only is it focused on you know, education about pain management, but also there was an adjunct professor that was hired by Tufts who was an employee of Purdue Pharmaceuticals. So these donations, these programs that got established, and even the faculty that taught at these programs are all causes of concern that we as students have that lead to us wanting to change the relationship between Tufts and the Sackler family. According to the Massachusetts Attorney General's lawsuit, Purdue cited the MS Prep program as a model for gaining influence over hospitals, med schools, and other medical establishments. But there's a whole laundry list of facts about Tufts' ties to the Sacklers that really make the case that Tufts' relationship with the family is much different and more concerning than that of others with Sackler money in their endowments or Sackler names on their buildings. Dr. Richard Sackler sat on the advisory board of Tufts Medical School from 1999 until 2017, for one. And alarmingly, a former Purdue executive was, until too recently, teaching as an adjunct professor at Tufts Medical School. David Haddocks served as Purdue's Vice President of Health Policy from 1999 to 2018. He started teaching at Tufts in 2006 and was awarded the title Adjunct Associate Professor of Public Health and Community Medicine in 2011. It's unclear when he officially stopped teaching, but as recently as 2017, he lists his professorship as one of his credentials in an academic paper. According to an article in Stat News, in the 80s and 90s, Haddocks helped develop a theory called pseudo-addiction to explain away nascent concerns about the destructive potentials of OxyContin abuse as nothing more than a factor of, ready for it, under-prescription. And at a conference in 2003, Haddocks told attendees that OxyContin was not addictive. Haddocks' current job is as president of Opos Consulting, which, according to its website, offers a disease management and risk mitigation platform for the safe and compliant delivery of chronic opioid therapy. So, with all this in mind, is it really an overreaction to single Tufts out from some of its peers that have also accepted Sackler money? Is it really that much of a stretch to call it OxyContin University? And how can Tufts adequately repent for the harm it's caused and rebuild its reputation after the mockery it has made of its medical education's integrity? Some medical students are confronting all of these questions and asking administrators to do the same.
In light of the new allegations against the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma, museums such as the Guggenheim, the National Portrait Gallery in London, and the Tate have all publicly refused to seek or accept donations from the Sackler family within the past year. This is in part thanks to the actions of organizers from within these institutions who are protesting any connection with the family and their money. Students are following suit, fighting to sever their university's ties to the Sackler family and mitigate this troubled history. At Harvard, students are demanding the complete removal of the Sackler name from their campus. Here at Tufts, students have started the Sack Sackler Initiative, and graduate students at the Tufts Medical School are petitioning for renaming the Sackler Building and reevaluating MS Prep and other programs funded by Sackler Grants. In a March 25, 2019 letter to the Tufts community, President Monaco addressed concerns about the university's involvement with the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma. He acknowledges that students want to strike the Sackler name from the building and school, but writes that no actions will be taken regarding the name or otherwise until a formal investigation has been completed. Donald K. Stern, former U.S. Attorney for the District of Massachusetts, has been asked to lead that investigation. According to President Monaco, Stern will look into Tufts programs, like PrEP, that have received funding from the Sackler family and their foundations, as well as from Purdue Pharma. The investigation is meant to determine if Tufts adhered to its policies and if those policies accounted for academic and research integrity and potential conflicts of interest. He gives no timeline for the investigation, nor does he address anything that can be done in the interim. David Davila, along with a group of concerned medical students, have been pushing for more commitment from the administration. They were able to collect 243 signatures from other medical students on their petition demanding the university rename the Sackler School and its buildings, divest itself from Sackler funding, reevaluate its conflict of interest policies with regard to donations, and end the MS Prep Pain Research Program funded by the Sacklers. They have also been conducting a letter-writing campaign to administrators and faculty to push for more donor transparency and more communication with medical students around the issue. What we did ask for in the letter was, of course, clear communication, not only in terms of uh, this investigation, what was going to come out of it, and what we were going to find out about the relationship, relationship specifically between Tufts and the Sackler family, but also moving forward, what kind of process there is in vetting donors who donate to Tufts, what kind of money is accepted and isn't accepted, and how are students involved in that, if at all. Uh, we also called on very direct and tangible actions to sever ties between Tufts and the Sackler family. Our building is named the Sackler Building. We want that removed. There are plaques around these buildings dedicated to the Sackler family, which we also find problematic. And there are honorary degrees that Tufts has awarded to members of the Sackler family. Severing ties completely with the Sacklers, as Davila said, demands more than simply refusing their money. But the question of money, of where the donations and gifts will come from if not the Sacklers, is persistent in conversations surrounding the Purdue Pharma scandal. As more institutions begin to refuse Sackler money, branches of Sackler philanthropic organizations, such as the London-based Sackler Trust, announced a temporary pause in their gifts until the media storm has blown over, as it has blown over so many times before. Some may ask whether Tufts has a moral obligation to receive Sackler donations and do good with them. If the Sackler family is giving the school money, surely we should put that money into addiction research or toward research that the Sacklers would never personally fund, right? Davila says this argument misses the point. No donation comes without 
some kind of price. So to say that the Sacklers might do something else with it and we can do something better may be a bit of a false um, uh, a false idea of yeah. what it means to make a donation. Yeah. It's pretty clear that when the Sackler family donated money to Tufts way back when to start these programs, there was an intent behind that. Yes. There was an agenda. Indeed, building that relationship has been in the Sacklers' best interest. For those reasons, uh, being careful about what donations you take is a huge part of our concerns in terms of what Tufts is going to be doing moving forward in the light of these new actions against the Sackler family and Purdue Pharmaceuticals. Kolodny would go even further, saying institutions that have taken Sackler money have a responsibility not only to stop taking it, but to help ameliorate the crisis that they've been complicit in. You know, so I, I think that uh, the institutions and organizations and individuals who played a role in promoting inappropriate prescribing and helping disseminate messages that uh, were deceptive um, and who took money uh, to do that, um, I think that they, uh, sh they bear responsibility to participate in correcting the record and trying to get better information out, uh, especially if they played a role in disseminating deceptive information. I think that that would be great at, at a minimum. Between 2000 and 2018, almost 18,000 people died due to opioid-related deaths in Massachusetts alone. This state, which some of us at Tufts have called home since birth, others for only a few years, has an opioid-related death rate of more than double the national rate as of 2014, and has quadrupled since the 1990s when OxyContin was first put on the market. As tough students, it is undeniable that the opioid epidemic affects our neighbors in Boston and our community in Somerville and Medford. We have a huge responsibility to the surrounding community. We understand very, very clearly that our education and our work at Tufts is not separate from the communities surrounding us. We can't act as if we live in a bubble. For that reason, there are different parts of the Tufts Medical School curriculum that really encourages community involvement in different ways. And our work here is an extension of that. Our responsibility is to make sure our communities are best cared for, not just as physicians after we graduate, but as we're getting educated in the middle of those communities. Yeah. And so that's part of why we're doing what we're doing. It is easy to forget, with all the coverage of the Sacklers and their money and their reputation as global philanthropists, that people are dying every day from opioid addiction. This is about more than money or changing the name on a building. David is right. We can't act as if we live in a bubble. That's it for this episode of A Blight on the Hill. Thanks to Christopher Glazek, Andrew Kolodny, and David Devilla for speaking with us and giving us their time. We'll have more content out next semester, so stay tuned for more deep dives into the unseen structural problems at Tufts. There's a lot more dirt where that came from. Until then, I'm Maddie Reed. I'm Sona Ludke. And I'm Liam Knox. Thanks for listening. And take care of yourselves.